All right, Tasha, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for being here today. Yeah, of course. Thanks for, for having me. I'm, this is an honor. So, yeah. How long? Yeah. How, you just got off a plane? I did. I just got off a plane. Um, it was a short 10 minute drive over here and the weather is gorgeous. So I'm really excited about that too. Yeah. Um, I'm terrible at introductions. I figured that out. <laughs> so I'm just going to let you uh, introduce yourself and tell us where you're from. Okay, sure. Um, so my name's Tassa. I was born and raised in Colorado um, and I did all of my education there. I am a molecular biologist. I did my graduate work in CU Boulder, um, and that focused on uh, neurodegeneration, actually, and structured RNA. Um, I then went on to do my postdoc at the Health Sciences Center in Denver, where I looked at um, actually nascent structured RNA and how RNA can lead to uh, different diseases. Um, so basically we were, me and a, a couple of our science friends were in our postdoc and, you know, we we're kind of done with academia and we wanted to take what we knew how to do and apply it to do something useful to solve problems. Um, and so we decided to start a biotech company, um, which, uh, was sort of the inception of Tumi Genomics. Um, we kind of dabbled in a lot of different industries. Uh, we did some work on cancer genomics, um, viral genomics. Um, we ended up uh, creating and directing the COVID surveillance lab at the University of Colorado uh, for about a year. Um, and sort of underneath that, we were also working on viral pathogens in cannabis. Um, and, you know, over time, we realized that the need in cannabis for accurate diagnostics, for scientific education, for you know, bridging that gap between the research and academia and what's going on in the industry was uh, was huge. And um, it seemed like a really great place for us to focus um, and make a big difference. How, how long have you guys been doing uh, cannabis viroid testing? Yeah, so we actually started testing for hoplatent viroid, um, I'm going to say sort of informally, last spring maybe um so basically we were we were working on covid and um, doing a lot of pcr um, on covid and we had a grower friend contact us and say oh i have this viroid in my grow and i know you guys are doing pcr diagnostics and can you help us out and you know we were you know we're just a bunch of scientists and we're like sure this this looks really interesting and and viroids they're horrible but their biology is really cool so um we designed some assays and um you know, she really liked it and she started telling people about it and it just kind of grew from there. Um, so, so, you know, hoplatin viroid, it's a viroid, not a virus. Yes. What, what's the difference? Yes. So um, viroids are one of the simplest forms of life that we know of. So as opposed to a virus, which has kind of an outside protein coat, like sometimes you'll see it as like a diamond and then it has like these little legs. Um, viroids don't have any outside protein. They're simply a free-floating piece of circular genetic information. Um, they're really, really, really tiny, but um, pretty infectious in plants. Now, are they harder to track or, or treat compared to a virus? Um, so they're different, I guess would be the best way to put it. There are certain types of tests you cannot do on a viroid. So, um, like I'm sure people because of COVID have heard of like antigen tests. So those types of tests look for protein. 
um, and that they're really fast. Um, with a viroid, you can't use tests like that. So you have to go with a molecular test because it's it's just the genetic information. So it has to be PCR or other versions. So you have to do a full DNA PCR test to be able to see a viroid. Yes, it has to be a molecular test of some kind. Yep. So that kind of, you know, as far as some of the questions that we were getting on IG were, you know, is there a kit or a test that we could use in the field to test for hop latent viroid? Yes. So there are certain types of technology that you can do in the field. Um, one of the ones that is employed most frequently is called RT-LAMP. So RT-LAMP is similar to PCR um, in the sense that it also finds the genome of the viroid, but um, it uses a specialized enzyme. So the whole thing can happen at one temperature. So you can put it in a machine and it just sits at like 65 Celsius and it amplifies the viroid. Um, and then you're able to see it. Uh, there's a lot of different ways to do it. A color change or sometimes there's a glow, no glow. Um, those tests are definitely have their place and they're quick and on site. They tend to be a little bit less sensitive than a PCR. So I like to tell people um, when you use those on-site tests, um, at least the ones I'm aware of, you it's really good at finding positives. It's less good at finding true negatives. What so just going back, what is PCR? Yes. Okay. So PCR is a method where you use these little tiny um uh, things called primers, and they go into the tube and they look for a specific uh, sequence of the viroid genome. And if they find that sequence, um, they use an enzyme called TAC polymerase. And so what that enzyme does is find the sequence and then it makes billions of copies of that sequence. So even if you only have one or two copies in the tube, when you're done with the PCR, you have billions of copies. And so it's much easier to detect it. Um, the nice thing about most PCRs is that there's a laser that reads every minute or so how much viroid is being amplified in that tube. Um, and it can actually make a graph of how much there is. And so it can be quantitative. So it isn't just, is your plant infected or not? You can say, oh, this has really high viroid load or really low viroid load. So a, a PCR kind of just amplifies the DNA mm -hmm. and makes a small piece of DNA much larger. Yeah. So it takes a small piece of DNA and then it makes, of that one tiny piece, it'll make billions of copies. Okay. So, and so it gives you a more a broader test yes. range so you can see it. Yep. And then you have LT lamp, which is... A different technology, right? Right. So it's um so it's RT lamp. RT okay. Yes. But so RT lamp, um, it's similar in the sense that it also finds a piece of the genome and it makes billions of copies, but um it uses a different enzyme. And this enzyme is able to function at one set temperature. So PCR, normal PCR requires the cycling of temperatures, um, which necessitates like a big expensive machine. Um, whereas RT lamp can all be run at one temperature. So you can just do like a little heat block or something. Um, so it's also an amplification technology, but slightly different. So going on the, on the product to have in the field, is it expensive to have something in the field that will be doing, be able to see hoplane virus or, or test in the field? Um, so there's several different tests. Some of them are not terribly expensive um, and they're not 
even that complicated to run. So I don't know if people have seen those tests where you have a tube and it's pink and then yeah. it'll turn yellow. Mm -hmm. um, so that's RT lamp. Um, and those aren't expensive or difficult to run. Um, there are also like handheld type platforms that you can buy. I think Agdea has one um, that uh, you can even get some sort of quantitative information. That's a little bit more expensive because it's a machine. Um, we're actually working on an on-site platform too. Um, that that was my next question. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of uh, potential issues with RT lamp um, because it can be non-specific. It can throw false positives, um, and because of that, it's not terribly sensitive. Um, we so what we've actually done is changed the chemistry of RT lamp um, to improve some of the problems. So ours, it, it has an internal control. It's more sensitive. Um, it's less subject to human error. Um, and it's, it's high throughput. So it'll be able to do 93 samples at a time. Wow. Yeah. And w when is that going to be ready? You're, what are you thinking? So we're hoping to have the beta version ready in the next few months. Um, and then the full version, which comes with a full analysis machine um, that will feed directly into a database, uh, that's probably a little farther off. That's uh, super exciting. Yeah, no, we're, we're really excited. We actually, we developed it uh, for COVID and it was being used for that. But um, I think it can have a lot of applications in cannabis too. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so what is DNA sequencing? Yes. Um, so to understand this, um, I might have to delve really shortly into a lesson in biology. I'll try not to be super boring. <laughs> so, um, so DNA is basically the instruction manual inside your cell that tells the cell everything that it needs to know to do whatever it needs to do. Um, and so just like an instruction manual or an encyclopedia, it has, uh, DNA has letters. But instead of 26, like the English alphabet, it just has four. So A, T, C, and G. And it's the order of these letters that give the meaning, just like in language. Um, it also has punctuation marks and capital letters. And it even has sentences. So sentences um, in, in DNA sequence are called genes. And they're like one complete unit that can be understood. Um, and so when you get a DNA sequence, you're getting the order of those letters um, with the idea that you can then find um, meaning in that by identifying where the sentences are and what they're trying to communicate. And with the, in, in that, and that's pretty much genomics is testing and looking at that sequence. Yes. Trying to understand what the order means, how the sequences interact with each other, how they're expressed in the cell. Are you familiar with anybody taking those DNA sequences and, you know, applying intellectual property towards them? I mean, what do you know about that? Because I, I was watching some stuff on DNA sequencing and intellectual property with cannabis. Mm -hmm. And like the first question that comes to my mind is like, how when it's not federally legal? Yeah. Yeah. So um, so I will preface this with I'm not a lawyer. So, <laughs> so take it with a grain of salt. Um, so I do believe that you can patent cannabis, even though it's not federally legal. Um, in order to get a patent, you have to prove that whatever the strain is that you've created is unique. It's non-obvious. It's not available in the wild. Um, and and um, you've created it. 
So one of the advantages to DNA sequencing is that you can sequence the genome of some, you know, new cool strain that you've created, and then you can identify genetic markers that track with whatever that trait is that you think is, is unique and non-obvious. And that data can help you with your application because you can claim that, that this is the genetic basis for it. I mean, you created that. So just breeding two genetics together and creating another DNA sequence, right? Because mm-hmm. that's what you'd be doing. Mm-hmm. You could take that and patent, possibly patent that? Yeah. So if you, so example, if you put two plants together and you create a new plant that has some sort of unique cannabinoid or some really cool growth pattern or whatever, um, if you can find the genetic basis for that and you can prove that that you know most of the cannabis plants out there don't have that allele or that sequence in their DNA, um, then you can make the case that you've created a new strain that is non-obvious and unique, and then you can patent that. Are they doing that a lot in vegetable crops that you know of? Or? Yeah, so there's a lot of um, patents in, in normal agriculture for new strains or... Um, you know, a lot of times you'll have two genetics and you cross them together and you create something called an F1 hybrid, which is a really robust plant. And you can you can sort of patent that process, too. So can anyone patent uh, genomes just off the street, you know, hire an IP attorney and just. So my understanding is as long as you can um, defend that you have invented it and created it and that it's unique and non-obvious um then yeah it seems weird when it's you know it's like a natural plant yep yeah i mean it seems like how can you patent that right exactly yeah so you're you're patenting like a unique trait trait exactly okay yep um can with genomics can you map lineage and see where certain cannabis plants have come from Yeah. So what you can do is um, you can take a cannabis plant and you can sequence the DNA and you can analyze spots in the DNA that tend to change. So they call these spots um, SNPs or indels. um, And you can find all the places that it looks different in the DNA sequence. And then you can compare it to a reference genome or another uh, cannabis strain. And depending on how many of those differences um, they have from each other. You can say whether or not these two strains are genetically really close together or genetically farther apart. And telling you where that plant came from a certain region, you yeah, know, in its lineage. Yes, as long as there's enough genomic information or genomes available um, for the different regions and different types of lineages, you can fit it in there. With, with breeding cannabis plants, can genomics pit certain genetic expression? So that's a complicated question. Um, right now, the genomic space in cannabis is um, in its infancy. Um, the genome was just sequenced um, you know, in the last couple of years. And even though it's sequenced, there's still parts of it that aren't done yet. I think... of it or so is missing, depending on which reference genome you look at, and something like 10 to 25% of the reads can't be mapped. Um, So in order to predict genetic expression, you not only have to have the sequence, you have to be able to find the genes or the sentences in that sequence, and then you have to be able to know what they do. 
um, and how different changes in each sentence is going to impact how the plant looks. Um, and that's a really complicated process. And the cannabis genetics um, space is getting there, but I don't think it's quite there yet. Is there one like firm or lab that kind of leads the charge of, you know, sequencing cannabis or does everybody come together as a whole? Um, so there are academic labs that are doing sequencing. There are industry labs like uh, medicinal genomics that are doing sequencing, but you know, they're, they're also publishing papers and making uh, some of the genomes publicly available, which is, is really helpful for advancing um, our understanding of the genome. So, so, so they could say, Hey, we found this gene and we visually look at the plant and the plant seems to grow shorter or have wider leaves and hardier. Yeah. So what we're able to do in cannabis um, is something called forward genetics. So in forward genetics, you have a plant that has some sort of interesting, you know, phenotype like flower or whatever, and you want to understand the genetic basis of it. You can sequence the, the parents and then you can make a cross and take, you know, hundreds of little babies and then sequence all of them and then let them grow up and find, the, find which babies have that trait and then go back to the DNA sequence and find changes that correlate with the development of that trait. Um, what's harder is reverse genetics, which is where you look at the sequence and you try to use it to tell the future. Like, this is going to mean that this is going to happen. Um, that's much more difficult. That this, this plant will grow taller or shorter or possibly be disease resistant. Yes. Yeah. So a lot of that is, um, it requires a much more in-depth understanding of not just the DNA sequence, but how that sequence is interpreted by the cell um, and how that sequence interacts with the genetic background of each of the cultivars. And so it's, it's a much more complicated question. Do they have, have you, are you familiar with any genes that they've found that are more resistant to powder mildew or botrytis? Yes. So um, they have been looking at this. Um, I think that they found something like 80 or more genes that can correlate with powdery mildew resistance. Um, uh, medicinal genomics did do one study um, that was pretty nice where they found one specific gene that they thought could be the cause. Um, they took that gene out and they expressed it in a bacteria and they showed that the protein that it was making um, inhibited the growth of fusarium. And so that's, that's the closest I've seen to actual causation so far. Would you be able to breed that gene into other genetics using like CRISPR or something? So theoretically, you could do that. Um, whether or not that specific gene is sufficient in the plant in vivo to cause um, powdery mildew or fusarium resistance isn't known. Um, and you have to remember that if there's, you know, something like 80 different genes that are controlling the resistance, um, how that gene is going to interact with the whole pathway to result in resistance in the plant is a much more complicated question. Um, but theoretically, if scientists could find enough genes that confer resistance, they may be able to um, create resistant plants using CRISPR. Is CRISPR GMOs or is that different? 
So the definite, yes, yeah. it's hard. Is a hard, that DMOs is a difficult thing. Um, I believe that if you induce a gene that normally exists in the plant, it's not considered a GMO because it's you're sort of speeding up a natural process. If I were to throw in like a gene from a you know fish or something to make it cold tolerant or whatever, then that sort of crosses the GMO line. But um, it's fuzzy. So CRISPR can be GMO, I mean, qualified as GMO. It, it can or can't, depending on, on what you're doing with it. Yeah. yeah. So we, uh, so I, I heard that we met because I used your, I used Toomey to find hop latent virus, viroid in my uh, spot in Nevada. Okay. And I had sent in some samples, worked with Patrick. Yeah. And got Got a, got a bunch of samples back, and we had taken five cuts off of one plant, mm-hmm. and um, every single cut came back as positive of hoplite and viroid. And I was like, "Wow, you know, yeah, this, you know, that you know, we're able to weed this out." And I've been in a lot of lot of facilities, mm-hmm. you know, all around the United States, and a lot of the times, you know, I've been I was in one in Vegas and walking through the veg room. And I'm telling the guy, hey, you, I think you got hoplite and viroid here. Yeah. Um, he, you know, he was, no, I don't, I don't have hoplite and viroid. I don't know what that is. I mean, a lot of people don't know what it is. Yes, exactly. You know, yeah. what, what is hoplite and viroid? Yeah. So hoplite and viroid is a tiny little uh, free-floating piece of genetic information that um, it actually was first found in hops. Um, of all, I mean, that hence the name hop latent viroid. Um, the reason they call it latent isn't because it can lie dormant, like hidden in your plant, but because when they found it in hops, they couldn't find any effect for it. So they decided to call it latent, um, which really just means asymptomatic. Um, that actually turned out to not be such a great name because it isn't totally asymptomatic in hops either. Um, it can mess up uh, like oil and acid levels in the flower. And some cultivars are super sensitive. Um, and then, of course, in cannabis, it's, it's not asymptomatic at all. So um, it was just a poor name choice. <laughs> so, so it's not latent. It's not. So this, it's a really confusing term. So in science, there's something called lytic and latent. So this is a cycle that some viruses do, especially like retroviruses, where um, they can intercalate into the DNA and then they just like hang out. Um, and they're kind of quiescent. They don't make, uh, they don't replicate or make new viral particles. And then when conditions are right, they sort of wake up and they enter a lytic cycle where they're doing a lot of replication. Um, hop latent viroid doesn't do that. Um, so it doesn't actually technically have a latent phase. If it's in the cell, it's, it's trying to replicate itself. Now, how, how, what are the growth characteristics that you've witnessed I know you're, I, are you, I don't, are you, do you spend a lot of time in the garden or do you mostly just in the lab and running to me? So I definitely spend more time in the lab than in the garden, but, um, I've seen, I've definitely seen my share of hoplite and virate infected plants and talked to a lot of growers. So, um, I do know that the symptoms can be really pleiotropic. So you can, which means like super varied. So you can have a plant, um, that's either really severe or, you know, so subtle that you don't even see it. Um, Common symptoms are, um, you know, uh, your plant will uh, be slow growth, 
Um, you can have malformed leaves, leaf chlorosis, brittle stems. Sometimes you'll see like sort of a horizontal grow or the leaves will overlap a little bit. Um, but of course, the most insidious phenotype is that it it totally destroys the flower. Um, and you know, at that the, time, it's too late. Yeah, you know, you've exactly. already three, four weeks into flower and then you're, you're seeing what's coming out of there and it's it's not. Yeah, it's a huge, a huge disappointment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it takes a really trained eye to see hot plane virus. Yeah. You know, I've, I've worked with uh, a few growers at, at my spot and I'd walk through the, the veg room and I'd be like, hey, you got, you got HLV here, you got HLV here. And they're like, what do you mean? Like, yeah. I was like, you, you kill this plant. You know, kill the plant, throw away the scissors. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I, what I've seen is, is kind of, instead of the, the branching, you know, first signs that I look for, instead of the branching growing up at more of a, a direct straight angle, uh-huh. you kind of see this flow out sideways and yeah. then up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, those, that's one sign. You know, they, they come out sideways and then they go up instead of shooting straight off the main stem. And then also, you kind of get this slight curl of a, the leaves start to kind of come together a bit mm-hmm. and yeah. you'll see, you'll see that. Um, and then that's in veg and that's, those are the first signs that, that I really look for. But in flower, it's like, you know, you've already filled up half your garden with HLV and then you're flowering out and you're like, do I even keep, keep this going? Right. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Um, how does HLV spread in the garden? Yeah. So HLV spreads via mechanical damage. So um, unfortunately, the biggest offender for HLV spreading is is us. Um, It's very efficient at spreading on unsterilized tools. So if you're trimming a plant that has HLV and then you use those same scissors on your next plant, you've just inoculated the next plant with HLV. Um, It can also spread um, to a lesser extent on like uh, trimmers hands or maybe even their clothes, um, especially if you get sap or something and you're not changing your gloves or cleaning them with bleach before you move to the next plant. That's a potential spread there, too. Even not you don't have to just open up the plant. Say we take a cut and you're opening up the tissue of the plant. You can spread it just by touching so you have to you have to have mechanical damage but it doesn't have to be like catastrophic right so um you know if you're trimming and you get a little bit of goo on your gloves or whatever um then it's it's on your fingers and it's it's a potential possibility if you're not sterilizing yourself between each plant that that even your hands could spread it can bugs like thrips and mites spread hlv yeah, so that's a good question. Um, they have looked at this question in hops. Um, they did an experiment a long time ago where they took like 1,700 aphids and they threw it on a, a really infected hop plant and they let them munch away and then took those aphids and threw them on healthy hop plants. Um, and they didn't develop hop latent viroid. And so the conclusion from that study was that at least in that setting with hops, the bugs weren't transmitting it. Um, that doesn't mean that it's couldn't happen in an indoor grow setting with cannabis plants. Um, so it's kind of an unknown right now. Have you seen some genetics not susceptible to hoplite environment? They have hoplite environment, but they're still getting good yields. They're still getting terpene production. They're still getting all the everything, and it still has hoplite environment. 
So I've never seen that, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Um, and I have talked to growers who, you know, they their plant is definitely positive according to the PCR, but it 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 seem everything seems fine. So the fact that there can be plants in hops, the cultivars that are are basically asymptomatic, it seems possible there could be some in cannabis as well. I had a question on Instagram. The question was, does HLV change the DNA or the RNA of the plant? Yes. So um, this is a complicated question. Um, what HLV can't do is get into the DNA of your plant and kind of live in there and be transferred from plant to plant. So it can't be like part of the genome of a particular strain. Um, once it's in the plant, part of the mechanism for making the plant sick does involve changing gene expression. So it can change um, something called the epigenetic control of genes in the plant. Um, and it can also impact the way that the RNA is processed and expressed. Um, that type of change is unlikely to be transferred to like, you know, plant, like if siblings or in the seeds or whatever, unless hoplatin viroid is also transferred into the seed. There is a possibility if you do breed two plants together that one of them has high blood viride or both of them that it doesn't make it to the seed? Yes. So the seed uh, transmission, so that's that question is kind of up in the air in cannabis. Um, there are studies in hops claiming that it's actually pretty rare. Um, I think they put it about 8% and they said that the level in the seed was pretty low. We've done some experiments testing seeds, and they they're definitely come out positive, and they come out very positive. Um, we're actually running an experiment right now with a grower who ended up in that situation, and he's like, I have all these seeds. What do I do? And I'm like, well, if you're not going to use them, send them to us, and we'll PCR each one and tell you what the percent transmission in seed is for cannabis. So we're working on that question right now. So you don't have the data back from that? I don't. Don't. Yeah. Not yet. So you actually test each seed. You, you put it in and you, you grind it up mm -hmm. and then you're testing that. Yeah. It, so HLV, you're able to see it by the genetic marker? Yes. So we, we, we detect it by PCR. So okay. we, each, each one of those becomes a PCR reaction and then, and then we, can, we can come up with a percent. Regarding tissue culture, have you seen tissue culture cure be able to cure hlv so um there is actually some published evidence in hops that tissue culture can um, cure hlv um it's not a hundred percent so it a lot of it depends on when the plant was infected and what cultivar you're doing it on so it can go from zero percent effective to 50 percent of the time it works um, I do know that there are some companies that we test for, and we also test for the people sending their tissue culture clones there. And so um, I can tell you that, at least for the companies I, that I've had experience with, they are successful at eventually ridding a really important cultivar of, of hop latent. But it could take multiple tissue cultures to get there. Yes. Yeah. So it, it, when, you, when you take the tissue culture, not every single one is going to be hop latent viroid free. So you have to test each one and find the ones that come out negative. Yeah. When you're, when you, when you're pulling, when, you, when, we had, uh, when we took our, our tissue tests to do the hop latent viroid, you had us pull five samples. Mm -hmm. why, did you, why did you do that? Yeah. So 
it turns out that the the viroid load throughout the plant can vary a lot so um we actually ran a little experiment with a different grower um, to see how much it varied. And we found that if you sample, you know, from top, middle and bottom, it can vary by up to 560 fold, depending on where you take that sample. Um, so if you only grab one spot on the plant and you're unlucky enough to grab that spot where the load is really, really low, you might miss an infection. So it's better to take multiple samples. Now, they sh should they take it off multiple branches? Around the plant? Yes, I would. Um, I would try to distribute out um, to as many different places as you can um, and then, you know, do multiple branches. And you can put it, at least for our test, you can put a little tiny clipping all in the same tube and then it all gets processed together. So that would it be easier to take cuttings from maybe a newly new brand new baby or new veg plant instead of a big mom? Yeah, so probably you'd have a better chance of catching it if it if the plant is much smaller. Um, most people are in the situation where they have a big mother and they want to clone, like you take like a you know a hundred clones or whatever, and they need to know if it's if it's infected. Um, but yeah, probably catching it in a smaller plant might be a little easier. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah, a lot easier because instead you you have one main top. You take that one top and you know right away. Yeah. I mean, that's most of the tissue of the plant. Yeah. You know, so it's probably actually better if, if they did want to get the big mom tested, just take a few cuts, root them out, transplant them, veg them for a week or two, take the first initial cut and send that in for testing. Wouldn't you think? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it just depends on, you know, what where you're at in your rotation and what you need to get started. Um, I guess there's always a possibility of missing it. That's the, that's the hard part. Um, I would, if you are going to take that route, I would probably test over several weeks that same plant just to make sure before um, you grow that one up. So test it a few times. Yeah. Yeah. More okay. than once. Yeah. Not just one time and you're good. Yes. You know, keep exactly. going. Yeah. What can growers do to prevent HLV in their gardens and from spreading? Yeah. So I would say the most important things are to enact a really strict standard operating procedure around um, tool sterilization um, and probably personal protective equipment for uh, your workers. Um, you obviously need to also come up with a, a pretty rigorous testing protocol. Um, you know, I know it, it's kind of a drag, but if I had to grow, for example, I would test all of my mothers, you know, every three to six weeks because, um, it's just not worth the economic loss that you could suffer if you had a, you know, a rampant infection in your mom room, for example. Um, you know, because information is always better than just hoping. Like I've had growers tell me, well, you know, we're just, we're just hoping it's okay. Or, or we have our rosaries and I'm like, it's it's always better to just go yeah. ahead and test. Yeah. Now I was when we uh were cleaning our utensils and cleaning our tools, just naturally we used isopropyl alcohol. Mm -hmm. And we thought, hey, every, alcohol kills everything. Right. Yeah. A lot of people say that. But what's Yeah, unfortunately, um not only is alcohol not effective, um, nucleic acids are really stable in alcohol. So they're really happy to be dipped in alcohol. Um, 
there's actually a lot of studies about what works and what doesn't. And so because I get asked this question so much, the things that do not work, um, alcohol doesn't work. Alcohol followed by flame doesn't work. Torching your scissors does not work. Um, a lot of the cleansers that are based on hydrogen peroxide or acetic acid, those don't work. Ammonium cleaners don't work like Lysol. UV light does not work. I know, right? What? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm tripping right now. So um, the things that work in every experiment are um, Viracon S, 2%. Um, I do warn people the 2% is really critical because if you do half a percent or 1%, it doesn't work. Um, or the thing that I like to recommend is good old household bleach. Um, that works every time in every experiment they've done since like 1969. How long do they need to leave it in bleach? I'm still tripping. Hold on. Flame doesn't work. Nope. No. Unfortunately, it's I know it, it's crazy, but it's not 100 percent effective. So is that just because it's a viroid and not a virus? Yes. So because um, because it's just that free piece of genetic material, um, it's a lot more resistant to most of the things that you think of that would like sterilize something. So, um, yeah, viroids are tricky. They're a lot trickier than other stuff. Yeah. So the whole time that I've had my cup of, uh, alcohol and the, you know, we're putting our scissors in our alcohol, it's actually helping HP HLV spread because it benefits, it does better in alcohol. Yeah. It's, it's mostly like a little HLV culture that you've got going on in the beaker that you're spreading around to the other plants yeah oh my gosh i know i know it's it's scary how many people tell me oh it's alcohol and i'm like no that's that doesn't work at all how long does it need to stay in the bleach yeah so um you want to use somewhere between 10 to 20 percent bleach um and 30 to 60 seconds is sufficient in order to deactivate the viroid um some people say like four hours or overnight um That'll work, but your tool is going to be like a puddle the next day. <laughs> yeah. So. So 30 seconds, you're cool. Just have a jar there, throw the scissors in, you know, and each, I mean, kind of each branch that you're taking. Yeah. Maybe clean in between. Yeah. If you have, you know, a couple scissors and you, you know, you have them in the bleach and you grab one and clip and then throw it back in there and then grab the next one. Um, and as you're moving from plant to plant, if you have like some bleach spray, you can spray your gloves real quick before you go to the next plant to kind of make sure that you don't have anything on your gloves too. And spray surfaces that you're going to be cutting clones on. Yeah. So it doesn't spread. Yeah. And do make it up fresh every day because the concentration can, can fluctuate if you, if you let a dilute solution sit around for a while. This is game changing information. Yeah. No, I get, I get to ask this question multiple times a day. So I'm excited to just get that out there and help people out. What are what are some of the what are some other other questions that that you're asked that come off the top of your head? Um, let's see. I get asked a lot um, how the viroid moves around the plant, um, and that uh, generally involves it hijacking its normal biological systems that transport um, RNAs and proteins around the plant. Um, I get asked what part of the plant has the highest level of viroid. Um, and that seems to be really variable. Um, there were some experiments done in potatoes or tomatoes. It was actually tomatoes 
um, where they inoculated a plant with a different viroid uh, that that is common in tomatoes and potatoes. And they actually found that um, the viroid was easily detected above where they where they inoculated the plant, but not so much below. Um, and then it's it's really common in the roots. So um, I would love to do that experiment in cannabis and and see if it's the same for for a cannabis plant. Um, probably one of the scariest routes of transmission that we have inklings occurs is through the water. So um, we can definitely find hoplite and viroid in the roots. We can find it in the growing medium. And we actually had one grower submit the little water emitter with some tubing attached. So we just cut off a piece of the tube um, and we used it as the template for the PCR. And we were able to detect viroid inside the water tube. So um, when people have hoplite and viroid and they have a common water source, they need to be thinking about that too. So DWC and recirculating systems. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, those clonal trays or like a flood and drain, all of those could be potential ways to spread it. And you tested the roots and it had positive hoplite and viroid inside roots. Yes. Yeah. And it's actually, um, if you look at uh, in hops where what tissues have the most viroid, roots are actually pretty high for concentration. That's super scary for anyone that's using DWC. Yeah, it is it is pretty scary. Yeah. And the scariest part is that viroids are really stable in water. So um, the potato spindle tuber viroid, which is really similar to hot latent viroid, is stable for seven weeks in water. So um, it's, you know, you really have to think about your water source and, and where that water was before it's, it's watering your healthy plants. Since you've been in um, the cannabis business have you kind of seen a progressive to it getting worse and worse it's hard to say if it's getting worse or people are just becoming more aware of it um i when we first started doing this there were a lot of people that were like what is the hoplite and viroid i've never heard of that i don't know what that is but um i think that awareness of it is becoming uh more common and so we're getting a lot more people submitting samples um, and we're seeing it, you know, kind of all over the United States. So it's everywhere. Do you have any other advice on seeing it or not spreading hot plate and viroid across your garden other than, you know, bleach and, and strict SOPs of cleanliness? Yeah. Um, so I guess my advice would be to um, sort of, for lack of a better way to say this, raise the level of anality. Uh, for cleanliness, like a little bit higher. Um, I would recommend to not let any new genetic into your facility until you've thoroughly tested it. Um, even if you get it from a really reputable source, they might not even know that it's infected and it's just not worth the risk of bringing something infected in. Um, I would treat your mom room like a temple. Um, don't let anyone in there unless they know how to sterilize themselves. They understand how it's transmitted and they, you know, they have the appropriate amount of respect for how bad hop latent viroid can be. Um, you know, and, and I would routinely test, even if everything is great and everything comes back negative. Um, it's better to always be monitoring that situation uh, so you can catch it early versus waiting until your plants flower and you're like, what? And then, you know, and then you've got a lot of backtracking to do to fix the problem. Yeah, then you're chasing your tail. 
exactly. the entire time. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, for a lot of growers, losing like a whole harvest is kind of, you know, it's economically devastating. So it's it's worth the investment. The The risk payoff ratio is pretty good for testing. I yeah, think. you you, uh, you guys are saving people's businesses. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, you know, I know we have a testing lab and whatever, but you don't you don't have to test with us, but people should test. Um, pick a lab you like. Make sure they're doing good science and and get your stuff tested. Yeah. No, when I was um, that story I was telling you where I was at in Vegas and seeing that kind of growth, you know, the first question I asked him is how long have these plants been here? Because none of your other plants have hop lane virus. Just this small, you know, eight by four section of plants that you have here definitely all have it. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I just got those from my boy like three weeks ago. I just brought them in. I'm yeah. like, man, I'm like, hey, get these out of here right, right. now. Like just, just, just it to come into somebody's garden and to just, just tell them cut all your, these plants down. You got to have some balls. Right. You know? Yeah. And, but... and I'm just like, look, cut these things down. And he's looking at me like, this guy's tripping. <laughs> You know, but you know, it's cool. I got a call about four weeks later and he was like, look, I, I sent him in and I got it tested and dude, you're right. They all have hot and viroid. Yeah. No, and, I mean, you saved that guy for sure. You know, and cause his entire rest of his garden was perfect. Yeah. Nothing. And the thing is it could all start right there with that choice of bringing some plants in from yep. your boy or whatever. And it just ravages your business and devastates you. Yeah. You know? Exactly. It's like I said, it's just not worth bringing something in unless you just test it. Just test everything before you put it next to all of your really important genetics. Yeah. That's probably like number one advice. Don't bring anything in without being tested. Yeah. 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 And I hear a lot of people say, oh, you know, but, you know, a lot of people recommended this or that or whatever. And I'm just like, you know, test it anyway. <laughs> that That's exactly why we do these podcasts. Yeah. You know, because everyone has you know, their own opinion or their own views or what their boy taught them or this since they've been doing it. And with here, it's just a clean slate. You know, we yeah. ask people like you, you know, the CEO of Toomey Genomics, you know, and get the right, the right answers to the, to the questions instead of what your boy, you know, told you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of crazy stories and, and misunderstandings out there. So it's, it's nice to set the record straight so that people you know, can start fixing the problem or, or avoid it altogether, hopefully. Yeah. Are you, are you guys, um, testing any other pathogens or working on any other testing for other pathogens? Yes. So we, um, so besides hoplite and viroid, we're also actively doing Fusarium oxysporum. Um, and we're hoping in the next month or two to have, um, released a full viroid and full kind of like fungal mold panel so that, you know, if, if, either your plant turned out negative for hoplite and viroid or you don't know what's wrong with it, you can kind of order something, order something a little bit more broad um, to identify it. Um, we're also um, sort of in the long term trying to move into next generation sequencing type analysis, looking for viral pathogens so that we can do it in a more agnostic way. Um, because the number of pathogens that I predict that we're going to find in cannabis um, is probably just going to explode. Um, there's a ton of pathogens in hops, and there's no reason because those two plants are so genetically similar that they wouldn't cross over into cannabis. And so 
I think along with looking for stuff that you already know about, it's important for the industry as a whole to start thinking about what's coming um, and try to characterize that stuff too. I mean, there's stuff that's out there. It's probably there that we don't even yeah. know yet. Exactly. I'm sure that, that there are plants out there infected with stuff that, that nobody's looking for. Um, and I guess one of the scarier things is that you know, once you have a crop that's so geographically spread out that has um, a viroid or a virus or whatever, it's just a, you know, a short distance to it spreading to other agricultural uh, crops like, you know, staples like carrots or lettuce or whatever. And so it's, it's even more important on a big agricultural view to be monitoring cannabis and, and treating it like a real agricultural crop that needs to be characterized uh, with its pathogens and, and biology and stuff. What what is fusarium? And- yeah, so fusarium is um, it's a fungal pathogen. It's um, probably one of the worst fusarium oxysporum. There is no cure for it. Um, it infects through the roots, and it usually call, causes like um, dampening off, um, you know, and, and eventually plant death. Um, it's really infectious, so it can spread around through the water, um, through, you know, on, on hands, just like a uh, hot latent viroid, um, through the air if there's spores. And so um, it's another big scary one, especially with hydroponic systems that um, people should be considering. So any kind of DWC or, or recirculating, will, you'll, you'll spread it throughout your whole garden. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, if you, if you have a plant hooked up into that common system that has fusarium, chances are you're going to you're going to gift that to the rest of the plants too. Are you familiar with any treatments, water treatments that, that kill Fusarium? Um, so I don't know of any water treatments. I do know that there are some harsher treatments that you can put on plants to help with Fusarium, but um, they're not really recommended for cannabis because it's, you know, you, people are going to eat it later and the they're pretty toxic. And so in cannabis, there really isn't, a treatment that you can put in there that's safe um, that'll take care of the problem. So you're saying fusarium is not curable. So what does a cultivator do to get rid of it? So it's very similar to hot latent in the sense that you got to find it and um, you need to destroy the plants that have it. Um, we've worked with some people that claim that they can take a plant and like continue to clone from the top and kind of clone away from it. And they've had success with that. Um, but um, you're probably your best bet is to just destroy the plant and um, sterilize everything. Bleach works for that too, um, and and try to get away from it like that. When you're getting a test for fusarium, you're doing water samples. So we can do water samples, root samples, soil samples, um, kind of whatever whatever you think the problem is. We usually do root, and then if people find it, they're like, okay, where is this coming from? Um, and they'll try, you know, sending in a little bit of rock wool or a little bit of water to see if they can figure out how it's getting into their grow. And you're able to get away from it. Some of your clients have said that, oh, we've cut in from the top and gotten away from it. But is fusarium in the tissue as well? Yes. Yeah. So it, it starts in the roots, but then it can spread to the rest of the tissue. Um, and so if it's, if it's really bad, it's going to be, you know, impossible to clone away from it. But, um, like I said, um, I haven't read any literature on it, but I have heard from people that test with us that they were, they had success doing it like that. 
are you are you what are you seeing on inbound percentages of hoplite and vira to fusarium so we test a lot more for hoplite and viroid than fusarium so i we don't have really good percentages we've definitely done tests and grows that had both um which was really bad <laughs> um but uh yeah. well i'm sure there's a lot to be honest with you yeah yeah because it's just it's you you can't see a lot of growers just can't see both, either of them yes yeah they're, it, and they're hard to spot and 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 it, you know it can initially also be kind of asymptomatic so and then they're hard to get rid of so is fusarium a, a lot harder to detect visually in the plant compared to hoplite and viroid um it kind of depends on if you know what you're looking for um i think eventually it gets really severe and it's really obvious but i think at that point it's too late um and so the trick is to catch it before it's really bad and then it spreads all over the grow. And so at the moment that you want to be detecting it is when you can't really see it anyway. That's scary. Yeah. it's. Like, I'm going it to get some fusarian testing going. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it, it's a lot more common in like hydroponic grows and stuff. Like um, rock wool. Yeah. Yeah. We see it. We see it more frequently, you know, in Colorado because everything is like super indoors because it's really cold. Um, but but yeah. It, it it can be just as scary as hoplite and viroid, actually. And it can spread just as fast. Yep, it can spread pretty fast. So that's super cool. Um, well, I appreciate you making the trip out. Yeah, no, of course. This was this was a super honor, and it, it's really exciting to talk about this stuff and and help people. Yeah. Figure it out. Save you a lot of time on the phone. Yes, exactly. I think, so, I think <laughs> so you can kind of tell your clients, hey, just listen to this podcast. You got all the information. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Especially with the tool sterilization one. Um, I'm hoping that everybody hears this and and everybody changes that because I think just that one change alone is going to make a huge impact. And the consciousness of Fusarium, you know, as far as I, I'm really concerned about this now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, like that, there's, there's other pathogens too. So it's, it's, it's just something to be cognizant of and know that, you know, you have to be aware of it. You have to be careful with your tool sterilization. Um, you just have to be thinking about it and, and then you have a chance of, of avoiding it. Before we end, what are some of the most exciting, the things that you're excited about that Toomey's working on that you'll be releasing soon? Yeah, so I would say the the most exciting thing um, for us would be our on-site testing platform, um, mostly because we've worked really hard on the molecular basis of the test to sort of change the chemistry so that a lot of the problems that people are currently having um, with on-site testing, it can solve that. Um, you don't have to open the tube. After you've amplified material, it's a visual readout, so you can see it. It has an internal control, um, so you know if, if a plant is negative or you just totally messed up the test altogether. Um, and it's high throughput, which I think for a lot of grows, a lot of the current solutions just aren't feasible if you have a thousand plants to test. Um, so we're really excited to bring that out, and, and hopefully people can get some on-site information about their plants. Where will they be able to... Will they be able to buy it through their local hydro store, through your website? Like, how would they get their hands on it? Yeah. So initially, it's going to be through our website. Um, and then um, hopefully we'll be able to distribute it out and get a farther reach. Um, uh, but that remains to be seen. 
yeah, I think it'd be awesome if um, you guys could distribute to hydro stores. Yeah. You know, just because a lot of the foundational cultivation for the licensed facilities is the bedrooms and garages and basements. Yes. And yeah. if we can help make cultivators conscious in the basement, we can then help, you know, focus on the licensed producers and, and spreading it come kind of where the source is. Yes. It's coming yeah. from. Yeah. So that's that I think getting it out to hydro stores and, and giving hydro stores an opportunity to to sell it to their, you know, small and at home growers is gonna be game changing. Yeah. No, we would we would love to make it accessible to everybody, you know, and and, and the only way to make a dent in this is to address it on every level, like you said. From, you know, the basement growers all the way up to like the huge vertically integrated growers. Um, because if we leave somebody out, then you're just leaving a reservoir for hoplite and viroid or any other pathogen to just rear its ugly head again. Yeah, exactly. Um, I just want to thank you for changing my garden. <laughs> you know, because seriously, because you're in there and and you have to kind of get your it's a guessing game the entire time and having a company like yours that you can go to and get an, a definite answer like this is what's going on you know gives you that ability to clean it out and and get rid of it and pretty much changing the industry you know so it's it's awesome what you guys are doing super excited about the at home test um super excited for everybody to be able to get their hands on it and do it at home you know in home grows and licensed facilities i think you guys are going to change the industry for sure um, appreciate you making the flight out to California. Yeah, no, and and thank you so much for inviting me. This is was really exciting, and um, I like I like science, so it, it's fun to talk about it, and and it's fun how many people are interested in it. So, um, this was a really great opportunity. Thank yeah, you. You're, we're, yeah, you're in the right industry now, or in in the industry now where you know you got a bunch of little scientists at home, you know, yeah. with their grows and doing their thing, and everyone's. Uh, that's what I loved about it most. You know, I love to grow plants, you know, since I was like nine years old. Yeah. So it's just, it's cool that, um, we get to talk about it. Yeah, no. And I'm surprised how many growers are excited about doing experiments with us. So it's, you're like, Oh, let's do an experiment. And they're like, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. So I'm like, this is great. <laughs> just a it's ton awesome. of scientists. Yeah. Appreciate it. And, um, let's wrap it up. All right. Sounds good. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks, Tasha. <laughs>